So Ben Ockrey, it is more than a pleasure, if that's possible, to have you with me for 20 Questions With. We met years and years ago when I think we were both there in Dubai for the launch of the Writers' Centre there. And we've kind of been friends ever since. I was at your launch in March, absolutely gorgeous exhibition of the artwork that you've been doing with your friend, Rosemary Clooney. You're famous, of course, for your writing, but we'll touch on your art. You are now Sir Ben Ockrey because you were awarded a knighthood in the King's Birthday Honours. So it's an an even greater honour for me to interview you again. (laughs) And I'll be asking you about your knighthood and what it means to you. There's so much to talk about. You won the Booker Prize, as we all know, in 1991 for The Famished Road. You've written recently about the environment in fictional form. And I'm going to start by just saying, what does it actually mean to you to be Sir Ben Ockrey? Well, it's um, it's um, it's a it's a surprise. It's a delight. Um, the letter came out of the blue, and um, I, I thought it was a hoax, um, and it turned out to be quite real. And you know, these uh, these honors are only as meaningful and as powerful as you as you make them. And I have decided that I'm going to use this wonderful honor to draw attention um, as much as possible to to the climate disaster, to the climate crisis, and to any subjects of, 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 of justice that, that, that continues to haunt and fascinate me, as well as, to, as well as to literature. You know, I want to use it to spread the power and the beauty of literature. I want to use it to start more conversations. I want to use it to, you know, um, to do the things that I'm most keen on, really, which is to spread and to change the idea that we have of civilization. You know, we think of civilization as being one kind of thing, but I think it's another. I think it's really about raising, you know, the whole of the human consciousness, just lifting us to a new place, uh, to a new level. It's not just about reading Greek and Latin books. I think it's also about civility, uh, justice, politeness, friendship. I like the fact that when you found out that you were being given a knighthood, you said that you were thinking of the writers who have gone before, but also the writers yet to come. Oh, yes, oh, absolutely. The ones that have gone before, because they, they, you know, they, they made it possible. They may have not been aware of it, but they, 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 they helped. And they continue to stretch the possibilities. And the ones that are to come, if, 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 they, if they get here, if we get through this difficult climate moment in which we find ourselves, you know, the ones that are to come because they're, they're still, still struggling. They don't know what time we yield. And we've got to, we've got to make the space for them, Matthew. We've got, to, we've got to create the space for them and the possibility. Before we touch on the environment again, I I want to just ask you this. You were born in Nigeria. You came when you were very young with your parents to live in this country. Then you were taken back to Nigeria before again returning to Britain. And I just wonder, as a Nigerian Brit or or British Nigerian, however you see yourself, does that sort of mean something a little bit extra to you, that, that you weren't born here? You didn't come from an established, long-established British background, and yet here you are now, a knight of the realm. I think it does. I think it says something about the evolution of, 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 of Britain. It says something about how Britain has, has changed and how Britain has been enriched also by people that have come to it from all over the world for many different reasons. Some, some, some came here to work. Some came for education. Some came, I, I came here to write, really. My father brought me first when I was a when I was a child, because he came to study to get a degree to go back and be one of the you know one of the leaders of of, of Nigeria, 
But when it was my turn, I, I, I came to I came to England to, to write. I'd begun write, writing in Nigeria, but I just I just felt, you know, that that, you know, because I was here as a kid and I developed this really deep love of literature, of English literature, and then from that world literature, I just felt this was this was the place, this was the place to write, you know, associated, you know, um, associated London with, with, with writing. So I came here, studied, and then said about what I wanted to do, which is, which, which is to write. So I think, I think, I think Britain has been enriched. I mean, you know, it's, it still is um, a challenge in modern history, you know, um, coming to terms with, with all of what history has meant, you know, colonialism, uh, slavery, Windrush, riots, you know, and recently the Ukraine war, Brexit, COVID, so many things to, to deal with, come to terms with, make sense of, that impacts on us in different ways. And I think Britain, with all of these struggles, all of these historical inputs has, has, become, has become much, much richer for it. And those of us who are here in these times, we are also richer for this, for this land in which, you know, a land in which the people, the people have gone out into the world historically, and the people of the world have come here too, and um, have added their their genius, their struggles, their flaws, their food, <laughs> their way of seeing, which is which is what we're doing. You know, I think of the, the writers of, of of my generation and the, the slightly older generation. I think of the Rushdies, the Ishigurus. You know the Cass Phillips, the you know um, the painters, artists like Anish Kapoor. I think of whole all of these people who've just come along and just added and grown together and learnt from the land, added to the land. Um, so what you, 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 your question is a very valuable one. I think we've also brought with us our different histories and our different traditions, our different literatures, our different richnesses. We brought it here and fertilized it here, planted it here, uh, and it's grown here, mingled with the soil. So that's what history does. History, history loves these um, unexpected and yet marvelous combinations. When we, were conjunctions. when we were together in Dubai, you told me a story, and I think you've told it to me since on stage, but this was a story that I found remarkable, powerful, lyrical, almost of another world. And it was the story of the moment you stood on that ship as a young boy going back to Nigeria and your mother had tricked you in order to make sure that you went with her. Just tell us briefly, if you will, that story and the questions about whether there were lions back home in Nigeria that were asked of you as a, a boy. Oh yes, no, when I was, when I was a kid and um, told my friends, my mates at school, that we were that I was, we were going back to Nigeria. Many of my mates uh, said to me at the time that was not a good idea that I should be going back to Africa. And I said, "Remember, saying, well, why not? What's what's wrong with it?" And they said, first of all, you know, the people live in trees, and secondly, there are lions on the streets." Um, and I was, um, I mean, this was this was news to me, uh, but it, it kind of had a very strong effect. So I told my mom, I said, "Mom, I, I don't think I'll be coming back with you. You should go on your own." But I don't think it's you know, wise for me to come back with it. She says, why not? I says, well, you know, my, f my friends told me that, that people live in the streets and people, people live in the trees and there are lions in the streets. So my mom laughed and said, do I look as if I, as if I live in trees? 
And I says, no, but you know, this is what my mate said. You know, why would they lie to me? And anyway, she she tried to calm me. She says, yes, I understand. You're not coming with me back to Nigeria. I understand. It's fine, but at least you can see me off, can't you? And I said, yeah, sure, absolutely, Mama. I'll see you off. But I'm going back because I'm not. So I got on, the, got on the boat and saw her off, and she was telling me, you know, how I should how I should look after myself. It's not easy being on your own, and you know I've got to look after things because I had all my comics. I had best collection of comics in South London. I thought at the time, and uh, she was just you know giving me exhortation and advice. And as she was giving me this advice, and we we're talking, the ship was slowly drifting away from 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 land. By the time I realized what what was happening, we were far into the sea. And I, turned, I said, Mom, what's happened? They've, they've left. Uh, I can't get back. She says, oh, don't worry. We're at the next stop, the next stop will, will send you back. It's just, don't, don't worry about it. That next stop uh, was, <laughs> was um, of course, um, the shores of Africa. I remember looking nervously at the trees to see if people lived in them. What impact did it have on you, Ben, to return to Nigeria at that age? How old were you exactly? I was about I was about seven. I was about six, seven, which at the time seemed to me much older than it does now because my daughter is now six and a half. And I'm looking at her going, oh, my goodness. It was that age I was having those ideas. How, 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 it's just a completely different perspective. What impact did that have on you, going back to Nigeria at that age? Well, I, I got to Nigeria to a tremendous welcome uh, by my father's people. Um, and so my first response, of course, was one of, uh, was one of celebration. Got off the boat, hit the, the, the land, and the heat and noise and the smells and the tremendous vibration of the land, the boom and the rush the emotional force of the earth, the voices, something about that atmosphere, something electrifying about that atmosphere just hit me as a, as a, as a child. And I, I think from that moment on, I was carried off into a kind of a whirlwind uh, dream, which, which, which lasted for most of my life there, till, till the Civil War came along. That was a, another hallucination, another unreality. Uh, of its own, a completely different story. The Civil War didn't break the spell, just turned it into, just gave it a nightmare quality, gave it, gave it something else. But then you came back to Britain again, and then, and then much later, much later, I came back to, I came back to, came back to Britain, bringing with me the manuscript of my first novel in an, um, in an almost empty suitcase full of books, uh, you know, this, this novel and a camera, some clothes. At what age? I came back when I was about nineteen. And you experienced homelessness, didn't you, Ben? Yes, that came. That came. That came a bit later. Yeah, when I, you know, had to leave university because my scholarship ran out. Um, no, it didn't really run out. My scholarship got um, appropriated by corrupt officials in Nigeria because I had a scholarship from Nigeria, and then that sort of disappeared one day. I could never find out whatever happened. It just, they just stopped it. I was just part of part of corruption, national corruption, and then suddenly. I had to leave university, um, and I was I was homeless after that for a while. And as I keep stressing, it was a very important phase for me. Homelessness gave me time to think, acquainted me with a new kind of suffering, acquainted me with the life of the street, acquainted me with what winter meant at two thirty in the morning, 
acquainted me with hunger and poverty. But I read, had books, and I wrote, wrote poetry, beginnings of stories I read. I found, you know, yeah. I learned a lot about people and about myself. Vital, a very important stage. Uh, the homelessness was a more more of a kind of a, an adventure of the spirit than it was a disaster. How threatened had you been by the civil war in Nigeria? Oh, the civil war. The civil war was, was uh, something that affected uh, my, my family because my mother is, is half Igbo. My father is uh, Robo from the, from, from the Delta, uh, the Midwest. And so in a way, the civil war was in the family. And a lot of it was spent hiding my mother. And I saw a lot of, you know, people being shot, young men, saw death in the streets, saw how neighbors could suddenly turn on, on one another. Lent a lot. It was tragic and, and awful. Did your parents make it through together? Yes, mum and dad somehow somehow came through. Mum survived. But she had to she had to be kept hidden for a lot of for a lot of it. So that was traumatic for your father and for your mother, and of course for a young Benokri. Very traumatic, but it was also a time of storytelling, because during that time, shut away, you know, my mom told me stories, told me stories about the world, and I could see what was going on. I could, I could see what was going on, and it really had a profound impact on how I came to see the world. It sort of started in me many of the great questions that um, I found myself having to ask afterwards, questions about life, questions about death, questions about race, tribe, questions about what, what, it, what it means to be a nation of so many different peoples, questions about history. How do, how do, you, how do you get to a place? How do, how do you get to a place where suddenly a nation's at war with itself, leading to the death of two million people? How, 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 does this, how, do, how did we get there? So these are the long historical roots of of this of this of this of this of this disaster, started many questions. Questions that led me in the end to becoming a writer. So, if I were to ask you, where does the storyteller come from in you? You would say, I would say the storyteller comes. Uh, the storyteller comes from, uh, but in a few areas, I would say first of all, it comes from mom because mom is the. I think mom. I think mom is a storyteller in the family. She's the one I got the knack of storytelling from. From my father, I got a kind of a logical mind because he introduced me to philosophy. He was a lawyer, um, and he, he taught me about logical thinking, clear thinking. Uh, the law, he says, is, is about, it's about clarity. But I think the storytelling also came from the land itself, because I grew up in a storytelling tradition. You know, we told stories to one another as children, and when the tradition, when the, the elders want to tell us something, they tell you something very directly, but when they want to be really powerful about it, they tell it to you in stories. My mother always told me stories as a way of getting me to think, you know. Now, here in the West, we tell stories, we write stories to, in a way, tranquilize ourselves. People take novels on holiday, you know, to sort of, um, as a kind of escape. But storytelling for me is directly connected to truth, to the enigma of life, to impossible questions. All the stories I grew up on had the biggest impact on me. Where, where, where stories where you could not easily resolve the, the, the problems that they, that they presented you with, you were forced to think. And interestingly, you were actually thinking about being a scientist in your teens. Yeah, I wanted to be a couple of things, but I, already, I, was, I was already set on the path of science. I was going to be a physicist. I was going to be an inventor. I was kind of good at it too. I was good at physics. Developed a great interest in mathematics. And it was it. Was it. That was it. I was going to be... A, Physicists till they turned me down at university because I was I was too young, and then I 
found myself with a summer at home with nothing to do except to read my father's books. I'd done my O-levels. I'd done all that, you know. And all I had was all I had left was now was, was this long summer ahead. And I just discovered my father's books, which he used to tell me to 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 clean because they were very they gathered dust. He used to say, Ben, dust those books, but don't read them. And I had a summer full of books I had to dust and, and couldn't read, which was a perfect invitation. And I slowly read my way through Dad's library. His classical, his penguin classics that he brought back from England. Tremendous collection of, of you know, world literature. By the time I'd read my way through most of the books, I'd read my way out of being a physicist and into being a writer. How did Ben Okri, the Booker Prize winning author, who would go on to lead such a distinguished life and become knighted, as we've discussed. How did that Ben Okri emerge from someone who had experienced civil war, had experienced trauma, had moved between continents, had been homeless, had seen extreme violence, had also experienced life in London? How did that Ben Okri emerge? It's very hard to say, you know. You, you, when you start to write, when I began to write, I went to write. A, I began writing out of a sense of outrage, out of a sense of moral outrage, really, out of a sense of injustice. Because I saw the landlords turfing out their tenants at, at, at a whim. They just, they just, they just wanted to increase the rent. They found people who were going to pay a higher rent, and they just threw out the tenants who were there. They just threw out their luggage without. There was no warnings. They could just have have a couple of thugs come in, get all their things, hurl them out into the streets get the new people to just go straight in, just as simple as that. And I saw this and was shocked and wrote, wrote an essay about this, uh, which was published to my astonishment and to my father's astonishment two weeks later, because I was very encouraged by this and wrote about other injustices. There were so many of them <laughs> in society at the time. Many of those other articles were not published. And then I began to write short stories based on those things, thinking to myself, well, it's not going to publish them as fact. Maybe they'll publish them as fiction which to my astonishment actually worked. Uh, these stories were published in, in women's magazines and I learned a very, very great truth for a writer. I learned an, an incredible truth, uh, which, is that this, which is that story, the, the story, the fiction, the short story, the novel, has in, at the heart of it this tremendous capacity to speak for all manner of things about the world. It just depends on the strength of your imagination. Stories can do anything. You can tell anything with, with, with stories. Now, I knew this from tradition, but from knowing this in the written tradition of literature itself um, was, was a very different discovery. That, that's how it started. It started from a sense of outrage. I wrote and wrote, and one of the stories I wrote became a novel. And then I came to England to study literature and to carry on writing. And um, in England, I wrote that first novel, and it was published after being rejected by just about everybody somebody accepted it came out and that became, became that began my journey because by the time that first novel came out two years after they were going to publish it by the time it came out i had changed um my literary philosophy had changed i've been reading the modernists and i'd grown i'd grown i had outgrown that first novel and um that outgrowing is already a sign of an accelerated uh, literary consciousness because you're now looking at the possibility of your material differently in a very intense kind of way. And this, this continued, this accelerated from, you know, with the, with the second novel. Then I began writing short stories. Then I began asking these questions again. You know, what is the relationship between this form in which I'm writing? 
this this novel form, this sequential form, this happened and then that happened and then that happened and then that happened. This linear um, narrative tradition. What's the relationship between that and that explosion of noise and 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 music and richness and vibrancy and traditions and dance that I encountered when I first arrived in Nigeria as a child? I began asking myself, what is the relationship between these two things? And I realized that um, the tradition that I'd inherited for writing stories, for writing novels, the tradition, the great tradition of the novel could not capture my African experience. And then I hit a crisis. So to answer your question, how did I get here? I got here through crisis. The crisis of the impossibility of one form expressing the reality of, uh, of, of a different people on a different continent. That began, that began a lot, that began everything, really. I began to see how, you know, the gaps, the, the, the gaps that existed between the form we use and the life we, we, we live. At first of all, it was about Africa. Then I realized that actually, you know, even the form that, that, that one used does not even correspond to the life as one lives it even here in England. So, so began this journey of questions about reality, what reality is how we capture it, how we transform it, and its effect on us, living in it in terms of history and culture and so on. You ask me a deep question, you get, you get a complex answer. Where does poetry and novel writing intersect for you? Well, in some ways, I don't see that there's an intersection. I, I see I see this part of the same river. I see creativity as one great river, one great swell, one great ocean, in which we experience different aspects of the form um, um, differently. The novel, the novel is the novel is a big, the novel is a big sea of, of of experience, of lives, of characters, narrative, and poetry is uh, a way of looking at the movement of life, uh, a way of looking at the, at its depth, at its interco- at the interconnection between between different aspects of, of of the river. Poetry is a way of seeing. Um, poetry is a, a listening to the deep beat of, 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 of life, to the elliptical beat of experience. So in a way, sometimes in my, in my, often in my novels, I write with a poetic pen. And poetry for me is not, you know, people tend to think of poetry as flowery language. Poetry for me is not flowery language. Poetry is an intensity of language. An intensity of language does not mean difficulty. Uh, sometimes it can mean tremendous directness, but it's always at an angle. So poetry multiplies uh, one's one's interpretation because of the enigmatic way in which it 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 it, it causes us to to stand in relation to to language and reality. So poetry is part of how I write prose. Poetry is part of how I write the novel, and I, I don't see why not. The novel is about is about is about the, the expansion of consciousness. Why shouldn't poetry be part of that? But then my poetry in itself, the poetry writing itself. Is 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 a, is a very distinct, very distinct and different activity. I began as a poet, tending towards the obscure, because all the poets I loved then were, were rather obscure poets. The people you didn't you read, you read a line of theirs, you didn't you didn't understand what they were saying, but you loved the sound of it. That's how I began. I began I began as this, you know, and then as I wrote more and more poems, I didn't like the obscurity. I didn't I didn't think it was authentic. I wasn't sure about how true it was and whether I wasn't gurning, pulling faces. And, and so my, my poetry slowly became uh, more crystalline, clearer, 
more distilled. You've already spoken, Ben, about the influence of your mother's storytelling on you. And I get the sense that you are quite heavily influenced by the oral tradition in your writing and in the way that you write. Well, the oral tradition is there because it's part of part of my blood, part of my upbringing. But then so also is the written tradition. The great literary tradition is also part of my upbringing. You know, two rivers, two great rivers meet in, in me. It's what history has done. And you're right that the oral tradition has had a big um, uh, influence on my writing, especially novels like the, especially novels like the Famished Road, um, which into which the, this great oral tradition, this storytelling tradition, flows. But you have to understand that I have not taken the oral tradition. I have not taken the great oral stories of Africa or Nigeria, where I grew up, the tales that I grew up in, and stuck them in the book. What I have done instead is allow myself to be inspired by this tradition into contributing to my own orality. So in The Famished True, there are a lot of made-up stories that are stories told to, to the main character, to Azaro. But I was making those up in the light and in the shadow of the oral tradition that I grew up in. I think the oral tradition is very, very powerful because it gives to the writer the gift of improvisation. Um, there's a kind of improvisational freedom that the oral tradition has. If I tell you a story, once upon a time there was a tortoise, and this tortoise had a smooth back. His back was so smooth, you could see your face in it. And then the story is about how his back got to be serrated and cracked. Now, when I tell you the story, I am gifting you my interpretation of this tradition. When you pass that story on to your children or to your friends, you are allowed to have your own variation in it. You are allowed to elaborate on it. You are allowed to choose an aspect of it that you want to uh, embellish while you're giving the general thrust of the story. So the, the, the oral tradition, you know, like jazz in a way, hands over to the next generation the, the, the injunction to make it up as well. Add to what I've given you. Keep the core of it but add something of your own. Add something of your Matthew-ness uh, to it. That's fabulous for the, for, for, the, for the writer of stories because, you know, all we do really is take from life, uh, uh, embellish, add, improvise. Uh, but to have that already as part of your tradition is, is, a, is, a, real, is a, real, a real advantage. Do you, do you see the visual arts, do you see painting as part of the same swell that you describe poetry and novel writing as being a part of. The collaborations that you have created with Rosemary Clooney that I mentioned in my introduction, is that an extension of your creative process and also an extension of Ben Ockrey? Talk to us about your art and where the drive to create art has come from in you. Well, you know, what you said earlier that I wanted to be a physicist. You know, I wanted to be many things when I was a kid. You know, I wanted, I, wanted to be a, I wanted to be a musician, I wanted to be a guitarist, I wanted to be a pianist. Uh, turned out I had no talent. Um, <laughs> we're going to form a band. Yeah, that would have been one of the worst, worst bands to come out of Nigeria. Uh, but, but I also wanted to be, a, I also wanted to be a painter. And I painted for a while and learned to paint in, in, in Lagos. I was painting alongside uh, learning to write. And um, yeah, to answer your question, Matthew, yes. I, I see painting uh, and sculpting. I see the visual arts very much as part of this great 
this great swell, this great ocean of creativity. They're all aspects of the abstraction of life. They're all aspects of the narrativization of life. Uh, they're all aspects of the re-representation, the reinterpretation um, of life. It's just, it's just painting does it in a, in a painting does it in a visual way, but with this, with this particular energy added to it, which is a, the, the compression of the richness of life as we see it. It's three dimensionality. It's, it's flow and conjunction. It's constantly moving images. You know, it is catching that, but expressing it on a two-dimensional uh, medium. That, for me, that is the primary poetry of, 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 of painting. That's its primary paradox. How to catch, how to catch life in a medium, in a dimension, that is less than the dimension of the life that we live. That's amazing. With writing, you're transfiguring life from the dimension of living to the abstraction of words, marks on the page. The marks on the page bears no relationship to the life that we live. It's even more abstracted than paintings. At least with painting, there is a close resemblance, even in abstraction, there's a close resemblance to what you're seeing, like that painting behind you on your wall, um, what, to what you're seeing, and uh what you, what the, the life you live um yeah so for so for me yeah, they're part of the same um storytelling of the psyche they're part of the same indirect response that we have to life and I, so i began i began painting um and as I, the more i wrote the less i painted and writing took over something of my 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 painting energy but the painting remained the painting is there in my writing. You can see that I was a painter in my writing. But also the painter in me remained and got, got resuscitated, got rejuvenated um, when I began my uh, wonderful collaborations with, with Rosemary Clooney. If you were addressing someone who had never read a single book of Ben Okri, which book would you direct them to and why? Oh no! If, no, if, no! It doesn't go for me, for me. The direction, the direction of people wouldn't have to do with whether they never read a book of Ben Okri. It would take something like uh, uh, the questions on a psychiatrist's couch, or the questions that a, a herbalist might ask you. <laughs> you know, I would, I would, I would ask, I would ask first of all, what do you prefer, stories or poetry? And you say stories. I'll say, okay, what do you prefer? Stories that reflect life directly or stories that reflect life indirectly. And you say, let's say, stories that reflect life directly. And I'll say, huh. So the stories that reflect life directly, which do you prefer? The ones that disturb you or the ones that soothe you? Ah, no, the ones that soothe me. Okay. Uh, and as for the ones that soothe you, what, which do you prefer? The ones that soothe you because they refer to something far away from you or the ones that soothe you because they remind you of something close to you? You know, it's a series of questions that I ask them before I then begin to direct them towards one book um, or another. Because I've written so many different kinds of books, they sometimes they bear no resemblance to one another, and they come from very different impulses. You know, a book like a book like Astonishing the Gods appeals to people who have a kind of a mystical, a spiritual, a mythical interest in life. You know, but they might not know it. It's very strange. Some some readers who have discovered Astonishing the Gods are complete materialists. They read it and they love that book, and I'm like. But this is a bad fit. How come you like this book? What's going on here? And um, what is going on here is that 
we some we hunger sometimes for an aspect of us that we don't even know that we have it's amazing you know we think that we're proto ultra realists but sometimes we like something dreamy something that takes us to the to a place of childhood um so it's very it's very you know it's a very complex very complex question you know i know i know people who are mystics who love books like dangerous love which is very gritty and set in the set in the ghetto in nigeria or uh, people who like historical novels and i give them a book like um you know the freedom artist which has got almost nothing to do with history it's a, a mythical book i imagine the world in the future where you know uh most of our free all our freedoms are taken away from us uh what what that looks like and how you deal with a world like that you know so they're different it just depends you know uh, and sometimes i would recommend a book that is the exact opposite of what someone's taste is um and and it would work um so it's not a case of me sending people to the to the famished road oh by no means sometimes i'll send them to a tiny little book of mine uh, called The Mystery Feast, or another really, really little book that people uh, 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 love a lot. There's tiny little books that I've, that, that I've written. Or I might send them to the book that I did with Rosemary Clooney, which is a book of paintings and very, very short stories, art stories, I call them. They're stories about life, and they've come out of my interaction with Rosemary's paintings, but they're stories, they're little, these little mythical fairy tales that have all sorts of elements, sometimes ecological, sometimes um, abstract and dreamy, sometimes they're set under the sea. So, it's, you know, it's, it, it just depends. Do you think that there is a deep yearning inside all of us, in, inside human beings for storytelling, to be told stories in whatever form? No, it's more than a yearning, Matthew. Not a, no, it's more than a yearning. It is, um, it is a plasma of life itself. Uh, we need stories. We need stories. We need stories like we need air. I would go so far as to say that story, story is to our souls what air is to our, our, our organism, our living organism, to our to our to our to our body, to our to our vitality. Um, we need stories. Uh, we live stories, but we also need to encounter the stories. We need to read them because stories are mirrors. You know, you live a life, you live a life, you live strange things, bizarre things happen to you. You can't make sense of them. And then you read a novel, you know, <laughs> you, it doesn't have to be a famous novel or a great novel, you just read this novel. And then suddenly as you're reading this novel, you get this double refraction of all the stuff that you've been trying to think about, but could not think about it, but you can think about it because you're reading this story. It's most bizarre. You know, I keep saying to people, stories are stories are little. It doesn't matter where they come from. This whole idea that oh, English people should only read English novels and English stories is ridiculous. We need to read stories from all over the world because we don't know what refractions can most help the complex nature of our soul's journey through time. So to answer your question, yes, we have more than a yearning for 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 stories. We have, we we have um we have a deep deep hunger for it and I, 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 I think uh, more and more we're moving away from uh, a storytelling culture to a, to, a, to, a, to a culture that to a fact-based culture to an opinion culture 
and I, and I think in times like this, we need to we need to refine and and transfigure our storytelling. We need a new kind of storytelling to combat the aridity that that has been introduced into our lives. Just to pick up on that word aridity in its most literal sense leads me to every leaf for Hallelujah, your book, which shows a deep concern for what we are doing to the environment. Oh yes, it's a it's a it's a book. I always say it's a book for children and adults, from five to one hundred and five, and it's different in the, the age in which you read it. But it's, it's basically an environmental fable. It's a story about it's a story about trees. It's a story about forests. I've just come from my my daughter's school where they just did a a play based based on Every Leaf of Hallelujah, and it was very moving. Um, and it, again, it just it just made me aware of what what story does for children. And I tell you one, what the thing, one of the magical things it does, it helps them process the indigestible nature of life itself. It helps them process trauma sometimes. It helps them process their, 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 their fears. Um, and in these times, no child can grow up without being aware that, that climate change is now part of, of, of their consciousness, part of this world. You know, by the time you get to six, seven, you're already aware that we've done something to the planet. You're already aware of it. It's there. You can't avoid it. You're aware that something has happened um, that we have done, we human beings have done, and that we have, some, we have somehow got to fix. Now, when I was a child growing up, my terror, my terror was, uh, was, a nuclear, was, a, was the atomic bomb, you know, that they're going to drop a bomb, um, that these two great powers were going to drop a bomb and it's going to... Of course, the Cold War had ended by the time I was a child, but it was still—it still lingered. The idea that these, that somebody, these people had this bomb that could, could drop it and it could blow up everything, was definitely part of my part of my part of my fear growing up. Well, and the Cold um, War—the Cold War persisted until the end of the nineties, until the end of the eighties, well, didn't it? Well, well, exactly, but exactly, it it it, it persisted, but it, it it seemed more intense. In the, in the 60s and in different parts of the world. It seemed more intense in America. It seemed more intense in Russia. But I felt it in, in, in Africa, even, even with the Civil War, uh, the, more, the closer intensity and nightmare of the Civil War. I was still aware of that bigger uh, um, nuclear um, atomic uh, nightmare. Now, the terror of childhood is, is, is climate. And um, Every Leaf of Hallelujah just, just made me aware how stories help help children help us to domesticate this fear so that we can make it manageable we can make it we can we can we can bring it within our living experience and find ways in which we can deal with it in our small little uh, way that can be meaningful ben what are you like as a person what how do you see yourself well what am i like as a person it's very it's impossible to answer impossible i, I don't like looking at photographs of myself i, I don't like listening to my to, to my to, to to my own voice. So to be able to t- to, to be able to tell you about myself is is, uh, is is an impossibility. I can give you some some uh, some glimpses. I I uh, I am I am shy than I appear to be. I I value I value friendship uh, tremendously. Friendship for me is sacred, which means that um, friendship also has to be very deeply deeply respected. And when and when it's not, I tend to. Uh, going to a bit of a shell. I, 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 I'm, I love humor. People who know me really, really closely know that I laugh a lot and I'm always making jokes. If you look at my writing, humor is always there, tucked away. 
hidden. I love walking. I'm a big walker. You know, I love I love going on long walks. I love reading. I talk about dreams a lot. Fascinated by the universe, by people. Um, worried about so many aspects of of the human race. Worried about the racial stupidity of of human beings. I don't I don't understand that. Um, you know, concerned about climate. My art for me is sacred. The art of writing is one of the most mysterious, one of the most difficult things. Um, I, I'm easygoing as a as a person, but I I hate being disrespected. Um, yeah. My final question is this: It's about what really, really excites you. So, if I if you were asking me the same question, I would say a thrilling Test match, a thrilling cricket match, or when I see a hen harrier for the first time coming into roost, an incredible bird that I might not have seen before something in the natural world that's truly astonishing. What really, really gets you excited? My goodness, what a question. What a question. Anything extraordinary, um, anything extraordinary excites me. By extraordinary, it doesn't have to be something huge. It can be something very, very, very small. So, for example, a piece of music that is just so beautiful, and I, I, you know, I can't, I can't figure out the, the the nature of its beauty or why it is so beautiful. That excites me. I listen to certain Beethoven concertos. Yeah, that that excites me. Um, a piece of writing that is just so true, and you unpick it. I try and unpick it to try to try and understand how it's how it's how it's as good as it is. That excites me. I'm fascinated by mysteries. I'm fascinated by things that are fathomless that are endless uh people people fascinate me maybe 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 my the biggest excitement if you maybe the biggest excitement of my life uh you know uh my 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 my, my daughter who is a constant mystery uh and and joy to me um i just remember her being born the other day and now she's she's correcting my mythology how did that happen <laughs> You know, um, love, love excites me. Jesus, are we allowed to say this? Love is the greatest, greatest mystery. It really is. And the greatest power. Um, being human, being alive is amazing to me. It's, it's uh, you know, the, the, I, I walk down the street and I look at my fellow human beings walking down the street and I look, you look above them, you look below them. There's nothing, there are no wires, there are no wires. Everything else that we've made, you can see the wires um, or the the mechanism by which they work. Uh, mobile phones, we can understand the mechanism by which they work. This one has to be recharged. But us human beings, no wires, no mechanism, no recharging, no... How, how, is, the, how is this? It's the most extraordinary, the most extraordinary thing, a human, a living human thing, whether you believe a, a flower, a, a, a cockroach, uh, there's this. I go for walks, and there's this rubbish bin that I go past. This place where they put all their, their compost in. Rats have got into it. Whenever I walk past, I hear them scrabbling around in there, and I think I think of myself. You know, I think of those rats scrabbling around in the dark there, and they have their own extraordinary and epic existence. You know, um, the, the life itself, the fact of life, is 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 is. is, is um, an insurmountable mystery. That's that's that for me is the greatest excitement. 
and it feeds into everything. It radiates out of every aspect of of um, of the things I love about living. So Ben Okri, thank you so much for answering my 20 questions. Matthew, it's always a pleasure talking to you, taking it to a new level today. Thank you.